0: And I try, and I try, and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Jenny Romanek. Jenny is research professor and associate director at that conveyor belt of marketing stars, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, where she has advised many of the world's biggest brands. She is the author of Building Distinctive Brand Assets and How Brands Grow, Part 2, co-authoring the latter with industry legend Professor Byron Sharp, as well as being an engaging and entertaining keynote speaker at global industry conferences. Jenny says, marketing is a science, but we try to dress up marketing science with theories borrowed from other sciences, rather than construct theories that reflect the actual marketing world. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thanks, Charles. Right, so we always start with seven quickfire questions, Jenny, such as Mac or PC. But given we're talking to a master of distinctive assets, we've thrown a few of those in too. So you can choose by subjectivity or uniqueness, fame as you see fit. Okay. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Fame or uniqueness?
1: Uniqueness. Fame's easier to build, uniqueness is harder.
0: Good answer. McDonald's Golden Arches or Nike Swoosh?
1: McDonald's Golden Arches, I think they've done more creative things with it. Nike Swoosh has kind of just been there, it's been a bit lazy. Irony, really, for a Nike. <laughs> it
0: is, it is. Uh, Tiffany Blue or UPS Brown?
1: Oh, God, I'd always go Tiffany Blue. I have several of it in my house and I hope to continue to have more.
0: <laughs> right, bottles now. Absolute vodka or Coca Cola bottle?
1: Oh, I love Coca Cola bottle. I love the story of how it was developed, that it was just someone asking, I want something that people can identify. It's Coke, even in the dark, if they grabbed it.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant that. Slightly odd Colonel Sanders or George Clooney?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. That that is a really tough one because KFC, when I grew up, it was the first fast food place um, that came to my town in um, South Australia, Wyala. And whenever every pay day we could have takeaway and every four weeks in a family of four I got to choose the takeaway and it was always my choice was KFC. But it's George Clooney. I don't think I need to explain that anymore, so I'm gonna to have to put that as a
0: <laughs> perfect. Moving on. Last one, Snickers or Toblerone?
1: Toblerone, because I the shape is such an iconic element of it. And it looks pretty.
0: Good answer. Perfect. Thanks, Jenny. So um we always like to start by asking people what their first job was. I think, importantly, there's a lot of value in understanding that talented folk don't always step straight out of a shiny college straight into a shiny career. Um, I've too many nieces and nephews worried about doing things, things the right way. So how did, how did that how did life start for you, Jenny? What was your first job and then what was your first marketing job?
1: Oh, okay. Well, my first job was actually when I was 14 in uh, the Central Districts Football Club. I worked behind the bar doing all the soft drinks. And my great skill was I learned to make a fruit cup, which is it's like a traffic light um, drink where you have green, orange and red layered colours in, a, in a, a single drink. Um, And it requires having them in the right um, viscosity and pouring them very carefully to get those layers. And I ended up having to get me let go for that job when they realised, I think about six months into it, that it was actually illegal for me to be behind the bar, being underage, even (laughs) though I wasn't serving alcohol. Someone hadn't read the fine print on the liquor licensing law until they did. Sorry, Uh, we can't have you here anymore. Um, my first marketing job was, also, was, was a funny one. It was working for the Independent Order of Odd Fellows to help them get membership. And the irony is uh, so the Independent Order of Odd Fellows is like the Masonic, the, the Mason, the Freemasons. Yeah. Um, like it's a, a, a fraternal society. And you know the thing about fraternal societies? Yeah, go on. It's in the name, Fraternal. (laughs) They don't let women in. So I did a marketing plan for them and then they're like, so do you want to stay and implement it? And I kind of had to say, no. And part of that was, so you want me to market something I can't actually join because I am not a man. Um, So, and I had wanted, I'd, I'd already planned to go traveling overseas. So I did the typical Aussie backpacker thing. But, you know, I did three months working on this marketing plan. I learned a lot of weird stuff about fraternal societies. Um, because I knew nothing, obviously, going in. So I had to do a lot of research into it and work out what the barriers to membership and how they could build it and things like that. Um, And, you know, that was it. It was a three-month gig and I saw it as just a way that I could put my skills in action and earn enough money to leave the country, which I did and then went backpacking for two years before I came home um, after that to start actually at what was then the Marketing Science Centre that turned into the Ehrenberg Bass Institute.
0: Oh, fantastic. So how, how did you actually end up in marketing science then? Because also I, I understand you originally studied occupational therapy.
1: Yes, yes. So everything for me has just been happy accidents. Um, so yeah, I did occupational therapy for a year and a half and realised I was not very good at it. Um, and um, so I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I'd always been quite good at economics but didn't want to be an accountant or work for the government. So I was like, don't know what you do with that. And my other strengths were physics, um, maths. Uh, i like, don't know what you do with any of those. And so I was at a boarding college with lots of people doing different degrees and uh, someone was doing this thing called a business degree. And I went, oh, well, that sounds practical. So I signed up for that. And then I'm not very good at reading paperwork and so I um, turned up for enrolment and it was in the days we didn't do it online. you actually went to a big hall and stood in line and went to a desk and you know signed up for your subjects. And I hear like finally get up to close to the thing, and I just hear them say, "So what are you make? What's your major?" And I'm thinking, "Huh? What? Major masters <laughs> degree. God, all right. So, you know, and the, it went pretty quickly and suddenly I'm there and all I remember is just going, all right, well, I hear they do marketing well here, so I'll just do marketing. No idea what I was actually signing up for. Just kind of went, that sounds like that would do. Um, so, yes, yeah, started a marketing degree and then um, finished the degree. No idea what I wanted to do, so I decided to go backpacking. I met some friends from the US, discovered a working holiday visa, did that, and then um, came back and, again, I'm like, all right, now I have to find a job went for some really excruciating job interviews um, for jobs that I was blatantly not suited for. Um, And then there was an ad in the paper to do your master's um, by research in marketing. Oh, and just to preface it, before I'd gone away, um, Byron had actually called me up and said, you know, we're recruiting people to do, you know, master's by research in marketing. Are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, kind of, but I've just bought my ticket to go overseas, so not right now, but thanks, you know, appreciate it. Hmm. so when I came back they advertised and it is the one and only time they've ever advertised and I answered that advertisement and went and presented they're like okay well yeah all right you want to start and I went okay um, and started and my only criteria for taking the job was I could earn enough money to move out of home because my parents were driving me crazy (laughs) after two years of traveling and I was stuck in my parents' house with no money going, I just need to leave anything. I love my parents, don't get me wrong, but, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I started on my illustrious thing. And I, definitely my masters thought about leaving and they convinced me to do a PhD. And I kind of went, oh, okay, yeah, I'm enjoying this. I'm finishing my PhD, and I kind of didn't want to be an academic, so I um, looked at doing a maths PhD because I thought I like this PhD thing. This is fun, a big project to work on and stuff, and um, and then I got convinced to apply for a um, research fellow position and went, went that way instead.
0: Amazing! And did you? Did you early on feel that you had found somewhere that you felt really comfortable in given it gave you that facility to use your kind of scientific skills, your 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 fondness for mathematics and physics? Did that feel like a nice fit for you? Yeah,
1: I mean, the degree didn't because when we did the degree, we didn't do any of the math stuff. Um, none of the modelling stuff they do now uh, it was all pretty standard um, what we would call quite old fashioned uh, marketing degree when I first started and i mean doing a business degree i was i was a pretty i was a very haphazard student I was living in a boarding college so I was just doing a lot of partying and um, doing the assignments I had to do and I was pretty much in danger of failing one subject every semester which I remind them now because right now they have quite strict criteria for people doing a, a research degree you know you have to have such a GPA be a star student and I keep reminding them that based on that criteria they might not have picked me Mm. to come in now if I came along Um, because you know sometimes you don't know what you want to do Um, and when I even when I started doing a, a research degree see to me the marketing is it's interesting but the solving problems I'm a researcher at heart and I happen to be a marketing researcher by trade right so I like solving problems i don't care what they are, they just, I happen to be in a career that I enjoy that is marketing and it's about people and their fascinating problems, but it's the problem solving that appeals to me more than anything. Mm. So if you had to say you know, marketing researcher, which is the dominant, oh, it's definitely the researcher that's applied into a marketing context.
0: Yeah, gotcha, that makes a lot of sense. And at what stage then um, in your career did you start working on and thinking about the how brands grow part two
1: but well I started that because I always like the idea of writing a book I've always been a big reader one of those people who go I want to write and you know the thing about writing what they say is that you know most people want to write few people actually sit down and write um and I was talking to um it was actually um The idea came out with a conversation with Leanne Cutts, who's um, currently HSBC, I think her title was CMO there, or Global CMO, Um, but she was at Mondelez at the time, and she came and visited us, because her family's, um, she has family in Adelaide, and we sat down at lunch, and she brought out How Brands Grow, and she said... I want to see this book but I want to see it written for emerging markets and I'd been toying around with writing a book of different things and we knew there was more stuff we wanted to build on from um, how brands grow and I went, that sounds like a plan. So that was the original plan for how brands grow part two. The only challenge with that was um, when we started doing a lot of research into emerging markets, uh, they weren't that different. Mm. So a book on how brands grow part two emerging markets was going to be a very short book, which was just going to be see how brands grow, which isn't much of a writing challenge for people who want to take on that first book. So we had to think, all right, well, what do we do? So that's where we added in things and we we sort of started with the behavioural stuff dealing with the, the people who had asked us about their categories because they felt they were properly represented in how brands grow um, and the different situations there, so looking at luxury, looking at new brands, but then starting to introduce um, the other work we were working on, which is more about how to grow brands, which you know talked about mental and physical availability, distinctive assets, et cetera. So you know, the book kind of evolved into its own being, Once we sort of set the framework out and then just started to go in and thought about what is interesting, what is useful, what do we need to spend time on versus what can we just really say, you know, we've already shared that with you, we don't need to share that again.
0: Fantastic. And then how did that develop into uh, your book on building distinctive brand assets?
1: Yeah, we started. Um, so, one of the things that came out, so, you know, mental availability is a so whole mental availability program. A lot of that came out of uh, the PhD I did, which was looking at the different ways the stuff in people's heads influences the choices they make and setting up hypotheses about brand associations and how that might happen. And testing, you know, three different um, hypotheses. One of them was that it's an individual bit of knowledge that, for example, I know um, Campari, which I'm just looking at now, is um, a good pre-dinner drink, and that single bit of knowledge is what makes me buy Campari. Um, Or it could be that it's a, a set of knowledge, so a small subset of things. So there are things about alcoholic spirits and there's a set of associations that if you've got that magic set, That's what gets you chosen. Um, And then the third hypothesis, which came out of a combination of me reading a lot about how memory works, understanding perceptual patterns, understanding how brands are bought, was this idea of maybe it's just how much knowledge I've got about Campari that determines whether or not it's something I'm going to buy relative to other brands in the category. And it turned out that that was the thing that was most supported. Um, And the surprising thing for most people is that my PhD was actually on services and B2B. So it was actually in banking, insurance and telecommunications and both B2C and B2B. So when people go, do the principles of mental availability, how grains grow, do they apply to those categories? I go, yeah, they were actually developed on those categories. It's just that merging of the thinking side of it with the work that Andrew Ehrenberg had done, which was largely in packaged goods. There was that and then we became more famous for the work in packaged goods because they were, uh, they were the categories that adopted it more early. Uh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, so that then led to, okay, so how do we actually build mental availability? And one of the things that seemed really obvious to us is this idea that to, for anything to build mental availability, any marketing activity, it has to have good, good branding. And so we would do presentations. We'd say an essential ingredient is good branding. And everyone would nod and agree and go, yes, yes, good branding, really important. Let us show you, let us show you our latest ad. It's really well branded. And then they would show me an ad that had no branding except for the last three seconds. And I'd be like, mm. So you were gonna show me the ad that was well branded? They're like, Yeah, that one. <laughs> See, the brand, it's really big it's there it's, you know, it hits you right at the end after you've watched the whole ad and I realized that this idea of good branding there was a miscommunication and so that led down a whole path of working out what is good branding um, stream of work looking at direct branding tactics and then these things called distinctive assets which then evolved into a whole heap of uh, developing the measurement the metrics The work we did, so we we do a lot of work with companies and we've been doing that for over five years now. And um, it was in those discussions with companies as we are debriefing them on the results for their particular assets that I realised that I'd have a conversation with some people and I'd be thinking, oh, those guys we did that project with six months ago, they'd really benefit from this conversation. But they weren't there and they didn't ask those questions. And then I'd get another question. And so the book evolved from all of the questions that people were asking us when they were trying to build, choose, um, evolve their distinctive and use their distinctive assets. So that's how that book actually came about. It just kind of, if anything, it wrote itself. It was so much easier to write than How Brands Grow Part 2.
0: Oh, Okay. Well, I'm fascinated by distinctive assets, and you hit on a few points there, actually, that I'd like to um, pick up on. And I wonder if perhaps one of the reasons why it was so easy to write is because people typically, like the the ad example you just shared where someone said, we want to show you our great, well-branded advert, when you say the word brand, people in some walks of life just think of logo. And of course, that's always the, the key. That's the brand name often and, and, and the main anchor that people probably have when it comes to their the mental associations they have with, with a company. But the indirect branding, am I right in saying that is all of the distinctive assets? That is your brand codes or whatever, um, however you want to articulate it. So going back to our seven quickfire questions for, for Nespresso, that could be George Clooney. He is an indirect branding asset of sorts
1: yeah so if you think about it in memory terms so the brand name is a node in memory it's a part of your memory for Nespresso now attached to that are things that can lead you down the path to Nespresso so George Clooney is one of those but it's not Nespresso it's George Clooney and you have to make that mental leap from George Clooney to Nespresso and not get distracted by Ocean's Eleven, um, all of the other things George Clooney does um, in the way. So that's why it's indirect branding because it's you still have to do that extra step to get the brand into your memory, whereas direct branding you're just going straight, it's an espresso, there's no extra step. So there's when you have indirect branding there's always a chance of retrieval failure, which means you have to work to keep that link up. When it's direct branding what you see is what you want to reinforce so that's why we separate the two out because they do signal to you that there is a chance of retrieval failure. You can see George Clooney and not think of Nespresso.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine retrieval failure, as as you put it, can happen for a variety of reasons, not least, you know, where, where the person is in the world. They might not be as familiar. They might be more familiar with his acting career than his preference in coffee, although I'm sure he takes a fair wedge to have that preference.
1: Well, there's this I mean, there's two major causes of retrieval failure. One is decay. The natural state of memory is to decay. The longer you are from an initial after you've got a link in memory, um, the, the harder it is to retrieve. It's just a natural process of how our brain works. And the other, as you just highlighted there, is mental competition, other things that are attached to the retrieval cue other than the target thing you want to retrieve. And this is always the problem with celebrities as distinctive assets is they're cluttered. They've got lots of associations with them, so their strength, which is you know that they draw attention because they feel familiar, is also their weakness as a branding asset because there's all these other associations that make it difficult for a brand to break through in the clutter.
0: And I suppose you have um, a lot of competition equally in certain categories. So there's numerous celebrities. If I think of, I think of watches as a category. But I'm not too sure which watch is, 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 is I should be associating which brand with the individual because it is so rife. It's almost that problem of everyone following the trend because there's this weird perceived safety in numbers when really the opposite is true and you should be going for uniqueness and, and, and fame as much as you can.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really there are some categories that i particularly if we take faces as an example, whether it be characters, celebrities, spokespeople, there are some categories that are very cluttered, and some that hardly use any at all. I mean, one of my favorite uses of characters was actually mama and papa for Domio. Mm-hmm. Because in a category that doesn't have a lot of faces, they were two very clear, distinct ones. Unfortunately, I don't think they're used anymore, as goes with a lot of distinctive assets. But, you know, that's an example of an asset in a category that doesn't have a lot of faces. So it makes it easier for the brand to really own it, whereas if you're in breakfast cereal and you launch another cartoon animal character, you've got a lot of other yeah, to 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 program against type, you have to work quite hard because there's a lot of bases already covered.
0: And is that then? Am I right in thinking I'm deliberately dumbing this down for for my, for my own benefit as much as anything? But am I right in thinking then that you the memory works that we like to compartmentalise? things as we process them so an example I often use especially when we when we talk around this area is when you try a new meat it often tastes like chicken because you're so keen to put it in a box that you recognize an association that you recognize.
1: Yeah, I mean, anytime something new goes into memory, it has to have context. Um, and so, so it has to basically attach itself to our existing network. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. So if you've ever sat next to two people who are speaking a different language that you don't speak, if you even if you listen carefully to the words, you won't remember them because your brain has no context as to where to put it. It's why learning a language is so hard, because our first time we learn, we have to learn the foreign language word, the our own native language word in our own network to get to then the meaning that is associated with that. So it's like a multi-step process. And as we get fluent, we skip over the na- our native language word and just go straight from the foreign language word to the meaning. So that's when we you know, get that, oh, I can now think and, and be fluent in there. So, yeah, so we always have to be careful about the fact that whenever we have to do, we, we, we have to provide context. Now, when you're a new brand, that context will typically be the category area that you're in. So, for example, if I said to you the brand avocado, what would you think of?
0: Well, naturally, fruit and veg.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's actually a mattress company.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: But you wouldn't know that. Yeah, there's some weird mattress company names.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. That is bizarre. Is that is that an Aussie brand?
1: No, it's actually a US brand. There's some weird ones. Purple is another one, um, and so stuff. So unless Avocado tells us they're a mattress company, if I say the brand Avocado, it's not going to go to the mattress part of your brain. Why would it? Mm. So, so we always have to have context to put it in. And when we're building distinctive assets, the context is the brand. When we're building a brand, the context is. The broad category area that we're operating in otherwise things can't stay in our memory and they can't be retrieved later so the anchor for anything we want to build we always have to be really clear on that that anchor has to be something familiar something that's already in our brain um, and if we want to attach new information to it so I told I think about it so the reason why you're saying in your example everything tastes like chicken is because that's a, an anchor point in our brain, a reference point for it. Now, I'm sure there is some, like if I gave you kangaroo, have you ever eaten kangaroo?
0: I have, yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, so if you ate kangaroo for the first time, you wouldn't say that tastes like chicken, would you?
0: No, but it depends who I'm talking to, who's asking the question, because it might just be an easy, lazy reference. But, but I take your point.
1: <laughs> yeah, people would more say, but people would more say venison, or I was talking to someone who had it for the first time, and that was their reference point for right. it. So, yeah, so there's always a reference point, but it's always something that we know. And you would only say venison if you'd eaten venison before and you knew what venison tastes like. Otherwise, it would be a sensible reference point. So it's always about thinking about where is it going into someone's network. And I think it's one of the things that is neglected a lot in our communications, that basics of what is my anchor, what am I adding? And thinking about that can help us just get a little bit more looking at our work from a memory perspective, not just an immediate reaction perspective.
0: What is a distinctive asset in terms of how does that manifest? Can it, can it be literally anything that triggers the, the brand? Can it be a sound, a smell? Yeah,
1: yeah it can, yeah, it, it, and it is in some instances. There's all sorts of things. So, you know, how do you subway with a smell? You go past the subway, you can usually smell it a while back if they're baking their bread, for better or for worse. I know some people who love that smell. I know some people who hate it. Um, you know, so, so, yeah, I mean, it can be anything that's sensory. Now, in reality, in marketing, we use audio and visual, and we tend to use visual more than audio because audio is obviously limited in its opportunity to use. Visual is the one we have the most common opportunity to use, Audio after that, and then you know, some of the others are sound, touch, and smell. Also, uh, sorry, um, taste, touch, and smell also can come into play depending on the category.
0: And do you find that brands are mostly aware of what their distinctive assets are? Because you gave a great Adolmeo example there. Where a brand we believe has ceased to use arguably its most kind of prominent distinctive assets.
1: I no most most of the time people um, uh, have poor judgment on it simply because um, it's very hard to it's very hard to see how bad the tornado is when you're in the middle of it for one of another analogy, you know what I mean? If you're, if you're living and breathing and it's all around you, it's very hard to get perspective. Um, and so what happens is you tend to, you do a couple of things. One is you overplay the importance of the things you've worked on. So if you've been working on a new tagline, you believe that is all important when uh, paradoxically the fact that you've been working on it, changing it, has probably decreased its value rather than increased it. You neglect the things that you've neglected, which, again, paradoxically, has probably made them more valuable because if they've been left alone, they might actually be stronger. Not always the case. Just having an asset doesn't mean it's strong um, because presence isn't enough for prominence. So many a time we test pack assets that have been on the pack for decades, but they don't register very strong as individual assets because they've never been treated as separate associations they've only ever been built in the one context and the other thing is you tend to underestimate what competitors are doing and what's cut through there so uniqueness scores people just often don't have a sense of what competitors have been doing and what might be competing for their brand either their own brand's potential assets or competitors own assets themselves so that's why objective measurement is so important because we're just not very good judges of these things, and our own actions hamper our capacity to be objective judges of our own activities or those around us.
0: Yeah, we, we um we we met. I had the pleasure of meeting you at DMX in Dublin fairly recently, actually, and your talk there, which was wonderful, focused. <laughs> it was a like a time. lifetime ago. I know it's so much has changed. You spoke there about these kind of predators that that distinctive assets face, and they might not all be external, they might not be competition, it might just be a lack of understanding and awareness within an organisation. What are the best practices for managing distinctive assets, and even measuring distinctive assets? How easy is that to do?
1: Measuring is quite easy, as long as you do it right. And this is where you have to think about what is the purpose of an asset. Um, So one of the things we did was develop um, an approach to measurement because we realised there were no metrics for this. Um, And when you have no metrics, what happens is the loudest voice wins and the loudest voice might not be the best voice. So we developed metrics and, and our metrics were based on empirical testing. We tested different approaches, but also being mindful of what we want assets to do. And what we want assets to do is to trigger the brand automatically without the brand being present. So that led us down a couple of paths of what's likely to be the best measure. First of all, the cue has to be the asset, not the brand, because we want to cue the brand. If the brand's there, you don't kind of need the asset. And secondly, um, that it has to be unprompted because that's how that what allows you to not just get if the brand is triggered but what other brands might be triggered as well because you don't know what people are going to say if they see the asset uh, contact without context um so you know we we came up with the thing of we need a cue we need something to retrieve and then I tested these you know, basically in a two by two matrix whether you cue the brand or the asset whether you prompt or unprompt and the asset queued unprompted was the best approach on a number of fronts. It gave you the most competitive linkages. And, you know, you asked me about which is better fame or uniqueness to have. Uniqueness is better to have because you can't control it because it's predicated on what other people do, what other brands are doing, and you can't control that. I mean, you can try and sue and have legal protection and things like that, but that's, you know, that's it's still a little bit out of your control. That's painful to do and rarely successful. Whereas fame, you can control because that's how you use um, assets and how well you execute and how widespread your execution is. So we want to make sure we've got as good a handle on competitors' potential encroachment on assets as possible because we can't control that, but we need to know it to manage it. And depending on the type of competitor encroachment will indicate whether or not it can be rescued or it's best abandoned. Um, And then what we also need to do is we want a conservative assessment. We don't want an inflated score because this is really important If you don't brand, nothing else you do will work because no matter how you believe advertising, marketing, activity work, it can't work if they don't know who it's from. So our approach is what we call risk-averse. It's actually very conservative. Um, When you prompt for brands, we found you got up to 20 percentage points inflated scores, so that means that the real score might have been 60% and you got 80%, which is a lot of inflation for a metric to replace your brand name. Um, and I'm hesitant to, you know, suggest that that would be a smart thing to base your strategy on something that's inflated. Um, so that's the measurement side of it. And, and getting that right important to have a realistic assessment of the most important metrics. Because, you know, I mean, fame, it is what it is and you can work with that. If it's low, that's the past, but you can build that. But uniqueness is is the one thing you really do need to know in order to – it can make or break your asset success. Um, And then, yeah, having those metrics are really important because they not only let you know what to build – Because once you realise you're building fame, you're building it amongst all category buyers, that influences where you do your asset building activities, how you do your asset building activities. You know, it all flows through to tactics. And that helps you then build but then protect. So I've done some of the best studies I've done assessing distinctive assets for brands are when nothing has happened as a result of the research because the brief coming in was, eh, we, we might get rid of this, we're not, we don't want it anymore, and we were able to demonstrate not only how strong the asset is, but also how precious it is in the context of the category and how you know you don't really want to get rid of it without a plan. So these are some things that you know are just really important to have. So having the metrics and making sure you're assessing them right just stops you from making bad decisions as well as helping you make good ones
0: perfect and and the distinctive asset grid i've actually got that in front of me right now which allows you to plot fame and uniqueness of your distinctive assets that that's not necessarily fixed or timeless then is it so so that that that's a living thing a living part of your brand so you may find that you're plotting quite comfortably say top right which is our our sweet spot our target but over time for various reasons that can change so you do need to constantly monitor and measure
1: yeah, constantly, but not too... It's not something I, I would recommend putting it and doing continuous tracking of distinctive assets. Um, once a year, once every two years for the assets that you either own or are building is pretty much all you need. I mean, the, the hardest part is the benchmarking study where you're really going, this is the lay of the land and this is where we're setting the strategy for the next five years or so of what we're doing. And once you've got that, it is just... Um, the occasional checking update. But you've got to also have the systems in place to make sure you're taking advantage of every asset building opportunity. Um, And that's where, you know, in, in the book, I talk about the whole system of a management system of how it works and the things like building in waves, not trying to build too many at one time, but building a couple. And then once they're built, moving on to the next ones after that, because one strong asset is much better than 10 average ones. So, you know, so so we're thinking about that sort of strategy of building it into place, how that all comes together becomes really, really important. So the grid will, you know, the grid's kind of a contractual thing. If you're a, 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 an academic, um, it's in your contract that at some point in your entire career you have to develop a two-by-two two grid, otherwise you get disowned. <laughs> You get to 60 and you haven't got your two by two grid that's <laughs> it. it's, it's like you know why did you try um no I'm only joking I'm <laughs> just to, to those who have not got a two by two grid but I do think it's funny because we always used to you know when I was uh, when I was a, an undergraduate we always used to joke about the two by two grids that we would get so I find it quite ironic I have my own now But the the idea of it is is some people just operate better in pictures and some people operate in numbers. So it was about giving you a picture, particularly when you're deciding on where you're going. I actually wouldn't bother, like if I was tracking it, I think the few... Assets you should be tracking, you could probably do them more more efficiently presented in a table in the spirit of Andrew Ehrenberg and how to present information. Um, He would say, what are you doing? A fancy picture for that. A table will tell you just as nicely whether or not things have improved. (laughs) down." So I I have um, having the privilege of working with Andrew and having that instilled in me um that's how I would do tracking over time. Showing trying to demonstrate that on a grid is messy at best. But the grid is good to go. This is how we're laid out now and you know, some sense of where we want to go.
0: So you wouldn't actually use it to, to plot against, you would just use it as your as your guide.
1: No, because, I mean, the reason we, we typically use the grid in the benchmarking study because that's when we're putting all the assets out, and you see things like, for example, oh, you have four taglines that all tested low in the investment potential quadrant. Hmm. Maybe one of the reasons they all tested low is you have four taglines. <laughs> yeah. We could cut that down to one, and that might give one the opportunity to jump up pretty quickly so yeah so and those things are easier to communicate when you've got a visual device to do it um you know trying to show things on that sort of chart tracking over time it's it's messy at best um I wouldn't recommend that as a data presentation tool but as a let's just see where we are now tool um that can be really valuable and also when we do our full reports we do things like you can plot asset types so you can say well you've got your four taglines here it has everyone else's taglines looking and it allows you to get some sense of which are the really competitive asset types and which are the asset types that maybe are a little bit freer and open which are the ones that, you know, maybe one brand has conquered and others have failed, versus which are the ones where, you know, no one's really um, got any traction? It just helps you understand again where are the opportunities could be, because there are different things you can plot on that chart on that grid.
0: And is it rare, you've touched on quantities of distinctive assets a couple of times, just loosely, but is it is it rare to find a brand with several strong distinctive assets and and is there is there a, a, an, an amount we should be looking at or aiming for as as a, as a business
1: um it's 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 rare but it's not it's more uncommon than rare I would say and there are some brands that I've dealt with where actually the challenge is you've got too many um, and what's happened is, typically, things like in emerging markets, if there's a big global player that's gone into emerging market, and then they've added and added and added, and they haven't had a lot of competition. But you might see local players starting to emerge, particularly as emerging markets get more sophisticated. Um, you know, so there was a time when in a lot of in a number of emerging markets, the local brands were seen as the cheap and nasty alternatives. But that's actually changed a lot in a lot of countries where there's a lot more pride and a lot more quality going into local brands in categories. So we're seeing that that those those initial global advantages are now being eroded. And one of the reasons they can get eroded is if you're trying to um, trying to protect on too many fronts. Um, so in that case, we then look at consolidation, and that might be consolidation around a theme or around an idea where you might have things that are um, are iterations on a a root idea, um, but they can be brought back to it's actually the root idea that you're building, not the iterations of it. Sometimes it does require to go, you've got three strong taglines. You don't need three strong taglines. So, you know, what are you going to give up? Um, because you might be missing an audio asset out of that and there's only so many assets you can build. And then that becomes a thing of, okay, well, which of those taglines maybe has more longevity potential? Because some of those taglines might be very narrow in what they can be used. And while if you're a big dominant brand, you have the luxury of a narrow cast asset that's very specific to a situation, that might not be the best investment going forward in the long-term versus something that does, could operate over multiple different campaign ideas and messages. So that's more of a, becomes more of a strategic discussion about where the brand's growing that goes beyond the metrics and goes more into understanding how these might be used in the future.
0: Great. Great answer.
1: I didn't ask you a question about how many, Um, just on that. The answer is it depends. I would go for diversity first So the distinctive asset palette concept is this idea that you you don't want a palette of 10 blues. You want a blue, a red, a green because you don't know what you're going to paint. You will need more assets if you're in more diverse media and sales channels because that will help you in those channels. But it comes back to what your budget for supporting them is because one of the things that will harm you in the long term is if you have a strong asset and you just don't use it. If you just don't use it, it just fades away. It won't fade away quickly overnight, but it will over time. That's why the top quadrant is called use or lose because it just reminds people that if you don't use an asset, then um, the natural state of memory is it will decay over time.
0: Perfect. Makes sense. Um, Before I go off to work on my own two by two grid, um, (laughs) I have a couple of listener questions, if I may. Sure. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we do have two for you. Question one is from Anne, and Anne says... Companies such as PepsiCo, Mars and Diageo have reframed their brand marketing to reflect the principles of how brands grow. Mass marketing seems to make sense in FMCG categories that typically have a lot of light users that make up a sizable chunk of the business. How does this work outside of FMCG, for example, in B2B? She also says, what other companies have adopted how brands grow?
1: Well, for what other companies have adopted, how brands grow, I suggest just go onto the website and you can see our corporate sponsor list. That's a pretty good indicator of some. It's not all because it is amazing how many I talk to companies and people go, oh, yeah, we've read the book and we're doing things. But um, the ones who really want to stay ahead are actually become corporate sponsors and um, they're listed on our website. But there's a whole range of different companies in there Um, and some big, some small, different areas of marketing from cars to banks to insurance to as well as packaged goods you know a whole range of different types of companies because basically this this the idea of how brands grow works in any situation where you've got you want someone to do to choose something when they've got multiple alternatives and that multiple alternatives might play at a single point in time or over time. So we have actually some researchers who are really big and uh, really committed to the charity sector and um, non-profits. And we run workshops on how brands grow for nonprofits. Because even though they're not getting you to buy something, they still want your time, your commitment. That might be volunteering. It might be um, taking part in an event. It might be raising money. Yeah, you know, it could be a whole heap of things, as well as giving them money to um, adopting a dog, another thing. So you know, so basically any situation where you've got those multiple options and you want to direct people to choose whatever it is you want. Um, that's when how brands grow can work.
0: Perfect. And um, Anne specifically talked around B2B, and funny enough, you clarified that earlier on in our chat, that actually a lot of your findings and a lot of your work actually originated in in B2B, but there does seem to be that misconception that it's mostly uh, geared towards consumer products.
1: Yes, the consumer, the packaged goods companies do a very good job of promoting themselves. But um yeah, no, it's 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 always we 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 uh we love a whole range of different examples. So, you know, some of the work has been done on everything from buying of airplanes to airline fuel contracts to doctors prescribing um antidepressants to hospitals buying coronary stents. You'd be surprised that there are different sorts of areas um, work we done. We talked about our non-profit work, looking at how people support charities. We did some work on donating blood um, and patterns that underpin blood donation. You know, we, we love weird data sets from different areas of... Um, consumer behaviour, and we love testing it. It's one of the fun things of the job of being a scientist. Is you get to go. Ooh, I actually did one recently where I looked at a competition between ways to solve pain. You know, because if you if you've got pain, there's a number of different things you could do to solve that. So if you've got chronic pain, how do you utilise those different areas of pain? And the answer is, there's actually some underlying patterns that. <laughs> How people choose between ways to alleviate their pain. Go figure. Isn't it weird?
0: <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah it, is, it, is, it is quite weird. But then I suppose everything, there's no reason why it should be any different. Our second question uh, is from James, Jenny, and he asks, do you have a favourite distinctive brand asset?
1: I'm a very practical person. I love it when people take the ordinary and do something that's surprising, simple, and works. So one of my favourite distinctive assets, and it has been for a while, because thing is um, San Pellegrino with the foil top on the can. Huh. And the reason I like that is it's an unusual packaging asset. It takes a can, which everybody has, but turns it such that the brand is easy to find um, in buying situations, which is one of the biggest difficulties of canning out, in, um, particularly in retail environments. So that's one of my favourite ones because I just love the simplicity of it. You know, It didn't require any fancy manufacturing, reshaping into unusual stuff, any complicated... You know, I mean, I don't know how complicated it is to put a foil top on a can, don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying that that was probably someone invested a lot of time and energy to do that. But I just, you know, I just love the simplicity of it and how it took an ordinary everyday shape and turned it into something easily identifiable. And that's where I think when we start to get creative with that, once we understand what distinctive assets are for, we can look at ways where we can make those, what are not revolutionary changes in the actual Creation or the design, but can have really big impact on the branding power of whatever we're doing.
0: Yeah, I love that example, especially because, as you say, if you break it down, they've taken something that is so common in terms of the actual can itself and just with a very slight adjustment have made that that much more unique. I really like the trivial as well, the triviality of it. And But that's that's something that affects everything or many things in marketing where there's that kind of butterfly effect of doing something seemingly trivial that has a massive, massive effect. Wonderful.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes we just overcomplicate things where sometimes it's actually the simple things that get the, have the best and greatest effect. So that's one of the things that I just love about it is it's just such a simple thing that someone thought of and implemented and works. Um, And yeah, I just, I love examples like that. So if anyone has any more, feel free, please feel free to send them to me because I do love collecting those sorts of examples.
0: Ah, perfect, perfect. Well, we'll share details with how people can do that and get in touch um, on this episode. So the, the final part of the interview, Jenny, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? Other than av- avoid fraternities. <laughs>
1: um, I would probably say, I mean, there's the, the the standard things of relax, but I do wish I'd gone to Cuba earlier. I wish I'd gone to Cuba when Fidel Castro was alive. I know it has nothing to do with I love travel. So, you know, so it's it's one of my passions. One of my the only news resolution that I kept for 10 years was to visit two new countries every year. Um, And so that was the one I felt like I missed because it kind of opened up before I got there and I wish I'd gone earlier.
0: That's one of my favourite answers. What advice would you give to your younger self? Go to Cuba earlier. (laughs) It's wonderful. Yeah,
1: well, Fidel Castro is still alive,
0: yes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, just just, uh, the reason for that is also I actually got to travel around Syria when old Assad was still alive. Oh, wow. And I got to see the most amazing country in the world. And it was only because I just went, I'm just going to do it. because no one. And I went by myself because no one was wanted to come with me. Everyone's like, you're going where? <laughs> um, and to this day, I hold on to those memories as precious because no one will ever see that country like it was, like I saw it again. Yeah, of course. So that's the other reason why I go, <clears throat> all these other places I could have gone to if I'd gone earlier.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing to hear. Question two, Jenny. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why?
1: Indices, because they're evil.
0: <laughs> Don't hold back; they're evil. No, they yeah. are.
1: I mean, they, yeah, no, they, 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 you know, they're evil. They, they, they distract us because you can only get a big indices with a small base, and if it's got a small base, it by nature is, in, is going to be unimportant. So, what we're doing is we're using a method to inflate the importance of the unimportant. And that's just evil. Um, it's, it's, it's deceptive. So use numbers where you understand where they come from and you don't have to do mental gymnastics to interpret them. And so, yeah, don't use indices. I would banish them tomorrow
0: if I could. Perfect. No, you're right, though. There, there is a lot of that and it's, it's, um, there is a lot of deception in our industry when it comes to data. You mentioned that you are a keen reader. So the, question three is, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? So these can be fact or fiction.
1: <laughs> I don't know if people want to read by fiction, because I confess I'm a trashy sci-fi reader and I just read all sorts of trash. Uh 'cause no, because I read so much serious stuff in my job that I and I love reading. So I like to just and the thing about sci-fi in general I love is that it takes you to a world that you would not imagine being in and so you know so so to me that that is just fun and it's very hard to prescribe people what sort of sci-fi they're going to like because I know sci-fi is a pretty niche genre anyway Um, and if you do there's even within sci-fi there are all different sorts of iterations of it so I'm I'm hesitant to recommend specifics. If someone really loves sci-fi and they do it recommendations, email me, message me on LinkedIn, I'll do that. But what I do encourage people to is to read for adventure, read for things and experiences you don't get in your daily life because the power of reading, and I noticed this when I didn't do it for a period of time and I relied on, like, watching tv and things like that the power of reading is it conjures makes your brain conjure up visual images and when you do that what happens is you are able to put things together in different ways so i read everything as a child i read everything from mills and boone books to wilbur Smith. um so i know a lot about the diamond industry in south africa more than i ever really wanted to (laughs) because they were the books that i could find my parents bookshelf yeah so i just read everything um and so and i think the more widely read you are the more you are able to put pull together strings that no one else has seen because you've got all these different inputs because our brains are only as good as the stuff we put in them and so the more creative and interesting and varied and and unusual it is Um, If someone wants a really good travel book, though, this is a book that inspired me to go to Syria. It's a book called A Scandalous Life, and it's the story of Lady Jane Digby, who was the first woman to ever be exiled from Britain. And she ended up uh, marrying a a Bedouin prince who had the rights to take travellers to Palmyra in Syria. So she had a very adventurous life along the way to that, but a scandalous life is a biography of her time, and I'm really surprised it hasn't been made into a movie because she had one hell of a life.
0: Fantastic. Funnily enough, sci-fi has come up a couple of times for, for almost exactly the same reasons. Um, in fact, Murray Calder quite early on in our um, in our podcasting. Recommended culture, se- culture series by Ian M. Banks, mm-hmm. but I know he's a huge sci-fi fan. So, so you're you're in good company.
1: <laughs> okay. Yes, there's few of us, but we 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 uh, yes, um, we, we yes, it's a cult.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, maybe it is. We um we'll link to a um a scandalous life plus obviously building distinctive brand assets and how brands grow. Part two on, on the listing, uh, the the fourth uh, poser to put to you, Jenny, is is we, is we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow that honor depend uh, bestow that honor to our guest who has to give their reason why. So, would you kindly dedicate this episode to somebody?
1: Oh, oh, that's an easy one for a sad reason. Um, Professor Gerald Goodhart. He yeah, I'm getting a bit emotional now. Um, he died last week or the week before. He was, um, well, he worked with Andrew. He was the co-developer of the Dirichlet model, and he was just such a fabulous man. He was supportive. He was the type of person you could bounce out the most uh, all-over-the-place ideas, and he would say something simple that would put you on the right path.
0: Yeah, we need more people like that in the world. Well. Uh, Thank you, Jenny. This episode is very proudly dedicated to Professor Gerald Goodhart.
1: We actually dedicated How Brains, Grow Part 2 to him as well. So there's a dedication at the front of that that's to Gerald because he just informed so much of the work that we do.
0: Wonderful. That's great to hear. That's lovely to hear, Jenny. As a final call to action... Everyone listening can head over to this episode's listing and we'll share links to everything that we've discussed, including Jenny's books, uh, links to Ehrenberg Bass, A Scandalous Life, how else can people get more Jenny Romanec?
1: Um, Right now, not a lot because I'm in kind of writing mode and isolation. So, um, yeah, just kind of taking it quiet and doing some stuff. But stay tuned. Uh, next year will be some more exciting stuff.
0: Oh, exciting. Fantastic. <laughs> That's all I can say. Okay, fantastic. I won't push you then. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for joining. It has been an absolute honor um, and a privilege to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: Um, And you better go and walk Alfie and Honey. Um... Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're actually both pretty quiet. Could you hear, I don't know if you could hear Alfie snoring, but I did have to kick him a couple of times.
0: (laughs) I wish we had. No,
1: seriously. He snores really loudly.
0: I wish we had. Uh, Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. We greatly value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in too. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co.